many, many different ways. We thank you that you offer us hope, that you offer us guidance in this world. Because as we walk through this world, we face circumstances that we can't control and that we don't like. We look at the world around us. We see so many things that trouble us. But we thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you. And I pray that now as you open Scripture, you will show us in new ways today how we can trust you, even in those circumstances that are really, really difficult, those circumstances where we do not understand at all what's happening, those circumstances that make us very uncomfortable. Please guide us today, Lord, in how we can trust you, even in those circumstances. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're continuing our series called Father of Faith, The Life and Legacy of Abraham. Now, this is going to be one of those sermons where you may need to buckle up a little bit. Because this is going to be a topic that's kind of difficult. It's not much fun. It's not lighthearted. You're probably not going to laugh very much. And you may be thinking, well, I might as well just head for the door right now. But I do hope and I do think, actually, that this is going to be worth your time, even though it's not the easiest of topics. So now that we have that disclaimer out of the way, let's just dive in and get started here. If you want to make someone uncomfortable with God or angry with God, start talking with them about God's judgment and wrath. In today's society that elevates values like compassion or like tolerance and acceptance and love up to the highest pedestal, topics of wrath and God's judgment are not only seen as distasteful, they are seen as just wrong even as evil. A man named Richard Dawkins, who is a well-known author and an atheist, has described God as a moral monster. For many people, when they think of God's judgment and wrath, for them, that is enough to dismiss God. And even for those of us who are deeply devoted to Jesus, topics of judgment and wrath can make us squirm with discomfort. Yet that is the topic that we're talking about today. We're looking at a classic passage today in terms of displaying God's judgment and wrath. So I invite you to turn to the Bible this morning to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. If you did not bring a Bible but would like to follow along, you can grab one from the pew and turn to page 15. Now in this passage, we're going to see two cities named Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you how it ends. How it ends is that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed by God. There are going to be people who die in the process. Now the question is, was God behaving badly? Or phrased another way, is God a moral monster? I think we're going to gain some valuable insight on this today. Genesis 18 starts with three men coming to Abraham and Sarah. Although it's clear pretty quickly these men are not normal men, it's actually God and two angels taking on a temporary human form. And they start by confirming to Abraham and Sarah that yes, they will have a child of their own within the next year. We're going to pick up our passage today in Genesis 18, verse 16. It says, Then the men, talking about these three men, God and the angels, they set out from there. And they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So first here, we are given a glimpse into the mind of God. Verses 17 through 19 of this passage I just read basically function like a soliloquy does in a play. If you've ever been to a theater, you've seen maybe at times where an actor or an actress kind of steps off to the side and they speak not to the other characters, but basically to the audience, revealing to the audience their thoughts, their motives, their inner monologue. The rest of the characters can't hear, but the audience does, just so we know what's really taking place on their inside. Now here in verses 17 through 19, God is basically giving a soliloquy so that we can understand what's happening in his mind, his thoughts, his rationale for what's about to happen, his motives behind it. What's happening here kind of reminds me of what Jesus did in John chapter 15, verse 15 with his disciples. He said to them, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So Jesus describes his disciples as his friends. And within the context of that friendship, he's sharing his thoughts, his reasons, his motives with them in a way that he does not share with others. Now, here's a trivia question, a Bible trivia question. In the Old Testament, who is the only person whom God describes as his friend? He has many people in the Old Testament he's close to, but there's only one person who he actually describes as his friend. Do you know who it is? It's Abraham. You could probably guess from the context of the series. But in Isaiah 41, verse 8, God refers to Abraham my friend. So like Jesus with his disciples, God shared intimate details with Abraham about his thoughts, his reasons, his motives for what he's doing that the rest of the world is not privy to. And the reason he's doing this is that he wanted Abraham to trust his heart and understand his ways. You know, sometimes in life, leaders make decisions that people around them don't understand or they're just decisions that are unpopular. And it's so helpful in those circumstances when you can actually understand the rationale that the leader has for making that decision. Or even if you're able to understand the leader's heart, even if you don't fully understand the rationale, you understand their heart, you trust their heart, you trust that they have the best in mind for that circumstance. And that's what God wanted for Abraham. He wanted Abraham to trust his heart and his motives. And one of the beautiful things about this account being recorded in the Bible is that it helps us also to understand God's motives and to trust God's heart. So looking back to verses 20 and 21, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, 
I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. So we see the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great, and their sin is described as being very grave. Now, an outcry is a call for help in a time of distress. It's a, it's a cry for help. This word outcry that occurs in Genesis 18 is the same word that occurs in Exodus 2, verse 23, when it says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out. They cried out for help. There's similar crying out around Sodom and Gomorrah. There are people experiencing pain and distress. They are crying out because of that pain, crying out for help. And it shows that sin and evil always have victims. But God heard those outcries. And in this passage, he is responding. Now, let me give you some background on these two cities. Sodom and Gomorrah were both very prosperous cities. They were actually the economic center of that region. But as we already saw, those cities were described by God as having grave sin. Sin that was very grave. We see some descriptions of their sin in the Scripture. For instance, Genesis 19 shows that they had sexual perversity and violence. In Ezekiel 16, verse 49, it says that Sodom was guilty of pride and greed and of ignoring the needs or even oppressing the needs of the poor and the needy. So these sins are a glimpse of what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. But we have to understand that sin is not only hurting people, it's also an affront to God. And really, until we grasp the holiness of God, we will always underplay the gravity of sin. So God here is preparing to bring judgment on these evil cities. And while we might be uncomfortable with what's about to happen, I am convinced that we want a God who is against evil. We want a God who is against evil. We want a God who will punish the Hitlers and the Stalins of this world. We want a God who will stop those who are hurting us. We want a God who will take seriously those who perpetuate evil. One of the biggest complaints against God that people have is that he sometimes seems to respond too little to the ills of society and the people's pain and suffering. People look around them, they see pain and suffering, they wonder, God, why aren't you doing more to alleviate that? But you know, that it just further solidifies the fact that people want God to be against evil. Now let me take this even a step further. A God who is not against evil is himself evil. Because think about it. If, if you have a God who is not against evil, that means one of two things. Either it's, he's indifferent to evil, he's, he kind of has uh, just really no moral stance in anything, he's pretty much fine with whatever happens, and you know, even, if, even if a child's getting abducted, he's like, eh, whatever, I don't care. He's either indifferent or he actually likes evil. Those are really the two options if you have a God who is not against evil. But when we look at the God of the Bible, he is wholeheartedly against evil. We see here that Sodom, or the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great, and their sin was very grave. And to demonstrate to Abraham the extent of the sin and evil in Sodom and Gomorrah, God sent these two angels who were with him on an excursion to Sodom. 
He's doing this just to show Abraham how much God's judgment is justified. Now, Abraham's a relatively smart guy. He can see where this is going, and he starts to get kind of concerned, especially as he recognizes that his nephew named Lot lives in Sodom. Think about it this way. I know that many of us were alive during 9-11, and we can remember watching, just horrified, at what was taking place on our TV screens on that morning of September 11th of 2001. But think about those people who had relatives or friends in those towers. For them, as soon as they saw those planes hit those towers and they saw what was happening there, their anxiety level ramped up and just went through the roof on a very personal basis because they had friends or family members in those towers, in the path of grave danger. And that's what it was like for Abraham as he realized that his nephew Lot was in that pathway of destruction living there in Sodom. And Abraham, he wanted to save his nephew. And he also didn't want the innocent people to perish there. To him, it wasn't fair if the innocent people perish right alongside those who are wicked. And so in verses 22 through 33 of Genesis 18, God allowed Abraham to bargain with him. In their bargaining, they agreed that if there were only 10 righteous people in the entire city, God would spare that city from his judgment and wrath. Just 10 righteous people. If you do a proportion, if you do some percentages, some calculations, you would find that 10 righteous people in that city would be well under 1% of the population of the city. may even be less than one-tenth of 1% of the population. If, if that many, if 10 people were righteous, God would spare the city. And he would have. I think of the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, God warned of imminent destruction, imminent judgment coming upon the city of Nineveh because of their sin. God warned them of this. And to their credit, the Ninevites took that warning seriously. They repented, and then God relented from that judgment. And he would have done the same thing for Sodom and Gomorrah if they had taken their sin seriously. If there had been even just ten righteous people in the city, God would have spared them. But there weren't ten righteous people. So remember, those two angels, they were dressed as ordinary men. They went to the city of Sodom, and they ended up in Lot's house. Now let's pick up the account, Genesis 19, verse 4. It says, But before they lay down, meaning just going to bed for the night, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Now this was not just a friendly overture just to kind of get to know them. This was a euphemism for sex. It says, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But this crowd said, Stand back! And they said, This fellow came here to sojourn, and he has become the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then the crowd pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Now, as we look at this passage, there is just so much depravity 
which also reveals the depravity of that city. So there's a crowd that's gathered outside of Lot's house, and the narrator is very clear here that the entire city is complicit with what's taking place. And this crowd was actually planning to rape these two visitors. Now, sometimes people will use this passage to try to make a case for homosexuality and homosexual behavior to be the very worst of all sins. We have to understand here that that the issue that Sodom and Gomorrah are facing is more than just homosexual behavior. I mean, the word sodomy does come from this. It was kind of invented based on what was going on here. But there are many more sins taking place here. I mean, we even see in this passage gang rape attempted. We see violence that's attempted to be perpetrated here in this passage. And sin of this magnitude that we see here is never limited to just one type. Sin piles on the more sin and empowers even more sin. These cities are, are so far down the path of depravity. And even Lot is tainted by this. I mean, look, he offered his, his daughters to the mob. I mean, how depraved do you have to be to offer your own daughters to be raped and maybe even killed? I mean, it's horrible. It's hard to even get your mind around what that would be like, that you would do that to your own daughters. Yet that's what Lot did. Now check out verse 9 here. Lot told the mob that what they were doing was wrong, but they said, stand back. And then they said, this fellow came here to sojourn, meaning he was an outsider and he came to live here, but he has become the judge? You know, people don't like being judged. People don't like being told that they are wrong. They never have. They never will. And so this mob now is becoming even more angry. Now remember, there are two visitors there with Lot in his house. And they're not ordinary men. They are angels. And you're about to see their supernatural power spring forth. What's, what's about to happen kind of reminds me of what you see sometimes in those superhero movies where you have a superhero who's just kind of been just acting fairly normal and all of a sudden they release a supernatural power. It's kind of like what we see happening next. This mob has been about to attack Lot and break into his house. And we see in verse 10, But the men, meaning those angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. These seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So you can feel that drama and that tension building, can't you? Let's move on, verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. So for some reason, Lot still is not taking this as seriously as he should. You have to wonder, what's wrong with him? So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. 
Now, near the end of that frantic account I just read, just as, as the cities are on the precipice of destruction, verse 16 says, The Lord being merciful to him. God saved Lot and his family from destruction. The Lord is merciful. There's a refrain that reverberates throughout the Old Testament that says the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. You know, even when God is angry against sin, he is still compassionate and gracious and loving. Now, you look at this man Lot, though, who's being rescued, and he's just a scoundrel. I mean, he really is. He made a horrible decision and decided to move down into Sodom and to engage deeply in the, in the life of the city. That tainted him. And then he offers his two daughters to be raped and maybe even killed. I mean, as a father, I can't fathom and I can't really even excuse what he just did here. It's hard to get your mind around. But God is merciful to Lot. Why? It was certainly not, not because of Lot's righteousness or Lot's innocence. It's because of God's mercy. And it's also because of God's kindness to Lot's uncle, Abraham. Now let's read the rest of our passage, picking up in verse 23. It says, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur, and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when the Lord destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So that brings us to the end of the passage, but I want to just make a few points as we reflect on these topics that we've seen today. One is that no one is innocent before God. No one is innocent I mean, Abraham was worried about innocent people who may be swept up in what was happening in that city. But the irony is that there were no innocent people in those cities. And really, there, is no, there are no innocent people among the human race anywhere. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul makes a strong case for the fact that the entire human race is guilty before God. Romans 3, Paul says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. So what this means is that not only was Hitler unrighteous, it also means that Mother Teresa was unrighteous. God does not grade righteousness and innocence on a curve. His standard is his holiness, and based on that standard, we all fall far short. No one is innocent before God. Now, if someone does turn toward God, it's because of God's grace and God's power at work in them. So that's one point, that no one is ultimately innocent before God in and of themselves. 
Secondly, God's wrath is his settled opposition to evil. It is a settled opposition to evil. Many times people project our own way that we humans handle anger onto God. I think of myself on Friday, this last Friday, we had that snow overnight. And I had a new snowblower that I bought just one year before. I should have bought it like 10 years earlier. Had all those years of shoveling. I finally bit the bullet, bought a snowblower about a year ago. And I went to get it out on Friday morning, and it would not start. I did everything I possibly could to get that thing to start. It would not start, and I was pretty frustrated. Especially because I thought, this is a new snowblower. It should start. I don't want to deal with the hassle, the added expense of getting it fixed. And so I'm out there shoveling snow. My snowblower is sitting at the top of the driveway, in a, just sitting there, doing nothing when it should be helping remove snow. It's just sitting there. I'm pretty frustrated as I'm shoveling snow that should be blown off by the snowblower. I'm frustrated. And I was thinking there, as I'm sitting there frustrated, blowing, or, or not blowing snow, I was shoveling snow. I was just thinking about how there's that part of me that wants to take the shovel and just smash it against the ground because I'm mad. Or I was saying, man, maybe I should just hit the, hit the uh, trash cans in the garage with the shovel or something just to, to work off some of that steam. I didn't do that, but I did recognize there have been many other times in my life where I have done that type of thing, just letting that anger out in a very dramatic fashion, an out-of-control type of fashion even. I mean, on, the, on Friday morning, I actually kept the, the frustration and anger in good check, but that isn't always the case. And that points to the fact that there are so many times in life where we do get upset with something and just we lose control. We say and do stuff we shouldn't say and do that we regret later. We just kind of fly off the handle into a rage. And that's the way that humans oftentimes handle our anger and frustration. And then we project that onto God and think, well, God handles anger and frustration the same way. You see someone like Sodom and Gomorrah, and God just destroyed those cities. That's kind of like the God equivalent of taking a snow shovel and smashing it against the side of a trash can. That's what people think. That God's just flying off the handle when they hear the term God's anger or God's wrath. But as we look at Genesis 18 and 19, do you see anything in this passage that shows God being out of control? My answer is no. God is in complete control of what's taking place here. He has a settled opposition to evil. He is opposed to every single thing that is evil. In this passage, he acted in an intentional manner. You could even say a rational manner, but still with a strong dose of mercy mixed in. So it's important to understand that God's wrath is not him just flying off the handle out of control. It's always a settled Intentional opposition to, to evil. Now, a third point I want to make is that God's judgment is mainly withheld for the end, but it sometimes breaks into our realm. There will come a time when every single person will stand in judgment before God. And most of his judgment is reserved for them. But there are times, though, when it breaks into our realm, like we see here with Sodom and Gomorrah. But most of it's reserved for the future. But that helps us make sense of what's happening when you see an instance like Sodom and Gomorrah, or like you see Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. You see those times when judgment comes here and now. Now, there's much, much more that could be said on these topics, but I want to close by making one more point. In Genesis chapter 18, we see God took on a human form temporarily 
and displayed both wrath and mercy. There was another time in human history when God took on a human form, but in a more full manner, and that was in the person of Jesus. And there was another time in human history when God poured out wrath and mercy in our realm, and that was when Jesus was on a cross. Jesus on the cross gives us a clear picture of the heart of God. His sacrificial love and his unwavering justice both displayed at once. Now, if you want an interesting conversation with someone, ask them, why do you think Jesus died on the cross? Why do you think Jesus died on a cross? If you ask that question, the most common answer you'll probably receive is, well, he died on a cross to show he loves us. And that is true. But if that's where people stop, that is an incomplete answer. Because dying on a cross in and of itself does not necessarily demonstrate love. Let me explain why using an analogy of sorts that I learned from Pastor Tim Keller. Imagine that you and a friend are standing next to a big bonfire. And your friend turns to you and says, you know what, I, 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 I like you a lot. I love you. I just, let me just show you how much I love you. And then your friend takes a flying leap into the bonfire and dies. Is that an expression of love? I mean, in that instant, are you thinking, wow, look how much they love me. No. You're going to be thinking, one, you're going to be devastated. But two, you're just going to be thinking, they're out of their mind. What's wrong with them? That makes no sense at all. That's not an expression of love. But imagine a different scenario. Your house is on fire. It's a really bad fire. You get out. Your friend happens to be there as well. But you realize that your young child is still in the house in grave danger. And without saying a word, your friend rushes into the house, grabs the child, runs back out to safety. The child is saved, saved by your friend. But the friend ends up dying as a result of saving your child. In that moment, you'd probably be thinking, wow, how much my friend loved me, loved our family. That is a definite expression of love because it involved a rescue. It was sacrificial, but it involved a rescue. And that's a picture of what Jesus did for us. His death on the cross was not merely a demonstration of love. It was a rescue. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath and the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. He took it upon himself so that we would not have to take it upon ourselves. And so if you encounter someone or even yourself, if you're struggling or someone around you is struggling with God's judgment and wrath, it's important to consider the cross where God himself took wrath that we deserve. It's important to wrestle with that. Jesus on the cross gives a clear picture of the heart of God, sacrificial love and unwavering justice displayed at once, all at once. Now, if we're trusting in Jesus and repenting of our sins, we don't have to fear that judgment. Romans 8.1 talks about that if anyone's in Christ, no, they're a new creation. That's a different passage. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation if we are trusting Jesus. That is absolutely terrific, tremendous news, isn't it? But in order to get us to that point, God did not set aside his judgment and wrath. Instead, in his justice and mercy, he poured out wrath on Jesus so that it would not have to be on us. That's the beauty of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has accomplished. And so, in summary, 
Does God behave badly? Does God behave badly, even in this passage with Sodom and Gomorrah? And my answer is no. He doesn't. Now, a skeptic would probably say, well, this is already a foregone conclusion. Of course you're going to say God doesn't behave badly. You're a pastor. You're a Christian. Of course you're going to defend God. But I would also say that as we've seen today from this passage, there's a very strong case that can be made directly from the passage that God is truly good. Yes, he does take sin and evil very, very seriously. And we do have to recognize that as long as we still have a sinful nature inside of us, and as long as we live in a world that's tainted by sin, that's influencing us, there are going to be times where we still don't fully understand what God's doing and why he's doing it. There are still going to be times where we're uncomfortable with the things that God is doing. But we can trust his heart. We can trust his motives. And we've seen enough today to know that God is not capricious, that God is not out of control, that God never judges people unjustly. We can understand and trust that no one at the final judgment will be able to say, you know, God, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. Because it'll be clear in that time, whoever does face God's judgment fully deserves it. And there will be people there, though, who have trusted Jesus, who will say, God, you are so merciful. I don't deserve to be let off the hook. I don't deserve your mercy. But thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that these are weighty topics. They, they are challenging passages of Scripture when we come to them. And they are things that make us uncomfortable. But Lord, we have to do justice to your justice and your holiness, even as we also celebrate your love and your mercy. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help each one of us to process these topics in healthy ways. We thank you that through Jesus, we don't have to fear judgment and wrath. Yes, we face trials and challenges. Yes, at times we face the consequences of our sin. But we're thankful that we do not have to fear your wrath if we are trusting in Jesus. Lord, I pray that each one of us will trust fully in him and will have hope that comes from him. Lord, we look at the world around us, we see so many challenges. Lord, this morning we again do lift up what's happening over in Ukraine. Lord, I pray that there will be a minimal loss of life, especially of civilian life there. Lord, I pray that in the midst of the uncertainty and the fears that you'll draw many to Jesus in spirit and in truth as a result of what's taking place. And Lord, we pray for wisdom for our world's leaders. What a tricky, challenging situation this is. Lord, I pray that this will not escalate in a manner that pulls in more nations into war. I especially pray that there will not be nuclear weapons involved in this conflict. Lord, I pray that where there needs to be repentance, especially on the part of leaders, those making decisions, that there will be repentance. We've seen today a passage where there are people who leaders even who made poor decisions, who needed to repent and did not. We also heard reference to Nineveh, where an evil city did repent. And Lord, I pray that for those who need to repent, that you will bring conviction and repentance in those circumstances. So this, this, this drama, this war that's taking place will be over soon in a way that leads to the flourishing and vitality and ultimately leads people to you. And Lord, we pray that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, please help us each to apply the truths of your word to our lives so that we can honor you 
in our words, thoughts, motives, and actions. And Lord, we thank you that even though our sin is great, you offer us forgiveness and your mercy is even greater. We pray these things in your name. Amen.